This is the Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association, where we cut through the noise and discuss practical tips and challenges facing new attorneys in Texas and the United States. In this episode, I am your host, Lewis Williams, podcasting from San Antonio at the TYLA quarterly meeting. I am one of the directors for the Texas Young Lawyers Association, and I'm also a uh, practicing attorney in Corpus Christi, Texas, with the firm of Porter Rogers, Dahlman, and Gordon. Our guest today is Raj Ajla, who is also an attorney at Porter Rogers, Dahlman, and Gordon, and our topic today is going to be about demand letters. So um, welcome, Raj. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you practice? Yeah, thanks, uh, Lewis. Thanks for, um, for asking me to come and participate in the podcast. Um, like you mentioned, um, my office is here in San Antonio at uh, Porter Rogers, Dahlman, and Gordon. We do um, a, a pretty wide range of uh, civil litigation, and I think it's unique in some regard because we do, or at least I do, uh, work on both sides of the bar for plaintiffs and defendants. So I think it gives a, you know, a unique perspective um, on issues that um, you know that you would face on on either side of a case. And so that's generally what we do. We have, like I said, a, a wide range. Any you know, insurance. Um, first-party insurance disputes, personal injury, plaintiff and defense work, um, oil and gas litigation, a lot of um, coverage, insurance coverage work. And so, you know, I think we see a lot of issues uh, that, you know, that are going to be applicable to what we're talking about today with respect to sending out well-written, concise, and and accurate demand letters. And also, um, you know, when you're on the other side, on the receiving end of one, kind of, you know, what you want to do to to be in a position to respond. Okay. Thanks, Raj. So um, how long have you been practicing? Ten years in November. And so is it fair to say you've written a demand letter or two? Uh, Yes, I I have. Um, You know, if I had to put a number on it um, over ten years, I would you know, I don't think it's overstated to say, you know, over a hundred of them at least, and then responded to about the same amount of demand letters. Okay. Is a demand letter something that you see in, in every case or most cases? Or? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's it's common. Um, you see them a lot in personal injury cases because the goal of the of a plaintiff lawyer, obviously, in a personal injury case is to settle their client's case um, in the most efficient manner and not incur expenses um, related to actually having to, to file a case. And then, obviously, your, your client wants to get a resolution as soon as possible. So you see them a lot in personal injury cases. Also, with respect to um, insurance disputes, uh, whether it be coverage or um, liability cases, you see them there as well uh, for the same reason. I think people are interested primarily in, you know, you want to do the best job for your client and best job in the quickest, most efficient manner. And the demand letter is kind of the first step of, of getting that done. Is it fair to say, I guess, that the, the demand letter is kind of the, the first correspondence that kind of goes out before litigation gets started? Yeah, that's accurate. And I think you know, like, uh, it's true for anything, uh, you know, first impressions mean a lot. And, uh, you know, it's it's easy to to put one together quickly and, and hurriedly, and sometimes you have to do that. But I think you're right to, to put it that way, that it is often the first formal communication with your adversary. And um, it's important to, you know, to make a good good first step. 
Yeah, and I like what you said about it's the first impression because I've, I've also received a lot of demand letters and, and a lot of them are very sloppy and, and it seems like that they're written very uh, hastily. And so I think that's a great point to bring up that this is the first impression, so you want to do as thorough and as good of a job as possible, right? That's right. And, um, you know, it, what goes hand in hand with that, and I, and I can speak about an experience that I had recently, you, it, it is the first impression, and you really are writing it to have the recipient get it, whether it be an, an individual or a business. You want, the, um, you want to write it so that a decision maker ultimately ends up with the letter and passes it on to his or her attorney, or if it's a company, uh, to their uh, legal department. And accuracy, whether it be you know the, the nature of the claim, or if you're sending a demand letter uh, making a demand for, for damages, we had an um, experience recently where, you know, we went through the substance of the, of the demand letter. It was an insurance dispute, and then we spent a good deal of time after the substance of the letter was, um, you know, laid out how we wanted it to make sure that the damage amount was accurate because, you know, some, the recipient's going to get it, and if you're overselling the claim, you lose credibility um, and I think that's important to, um, you know, it goes back to kind of the first impression. You want to put something out that's accurate. You know, typically when you send a demand letter, does that does that resolve <laughs> the case right away? No. And, um, you know, when you asked me to participate in this, I was thinking about how many times I've sent out a demand letter and, and actually had it resolve the, um, the dispute right away. And I can honestly say that's happened once ever. And um, but what it does is it sets the uh, kind of the parameters for um, going forward in the dispute. But it's unlikely that you're you're going to send out a demand letter and the recipient's going to get it and then pick up the phone or, or send you a letter back saying, "Oh yes, thank you for uh, for threatening to sue me. Here's <laughs> everything you're asking for." Uh, and I'll I'll echo that. I've had it happen twice where the, the next correspondence was a check. And that's only happened twice, and so that's that's very rare. Better than once. Uh, so, so even though I guess it's the the goal is to resolve the case with the demand letter, that's not always the expectation. That's not, and certainly, do you tell your clients, you know, don't expect this to to resolve right after we send this? Yes, and I think um, the you know managing a client's expectation is very important because you know you. You need to have the client involved in the process of drafting the letter. They need to feel as if it's their letter, even though you're signing it on their behalf. Um, and oftentimes, I think it's you know it's good to go through that process with the client and, and get their expectations you know realistic up front, and and then go from there. But you're right; it's you know the, you need to do a good job of communicating that. This is literally the first step in what could be a long process. And, and the other part of this, and I often tell people, sending out a demand letter is fairly easy as far as the legal work is concerned, but don't send one out unless you're really prepared to kind of take the next step because if you're not, then it's really a waste of your client's time and, and uh, money and, and the lawyer's time. Yeah, and I, I think we'll, we'll get into it briefly about what the next step is after that. But first, can you kind of tell us about 
Um, I'm assuming there are different types of demand letters. So I don't know if you can kind of tell us about what kind of the different types are. Yeah, sure. Um, the types that I'm familiar with and that I've personally drafted, um, you know, the one comes to mind where you may have a client that um, is being adversely affected by some, you know, improper or illegal action, and so you send out a, a cease and desist letter. Um, you've done I've done that before for clients. Um, you you know where you're asking somebody to basically you know immediately cease and desist what they're doing, and then you know the other side of that is you can send out a demand uh, for monetary damages. Um, obviously, that is where most litigation is focused on, um, and so those are really the the two sort of letters. The first category is where you're really focused more on the recipient's conduct, I suppose, and kind of laying out parameters for, um, you know, what you want to happen or, or to stop happening. And then the other side of that would be the, the letter uh, for some form of monetary relief. All right. And, and I think, you know, we've touched on it a little bit, but can you kind of tell us what are some things to consider when you, when you first start to draft a demand letter and uh, not only what things to consider, but what are the things that you need from your client to draft a good demand letter? Yeah, and um, that's important because obviously, you know, the the lawyer, from the lawyer perspective, you know, you've got a lot of clients, you've got a lot of things going on. You don't know um, as intimately and as detailed as the client knows, obviously, what, what has gone on. And so what I'll often do uh, when I meet with folks is to say, look, you know, I understand generally what's going on, but what I would like from you is to give me, um, I don't need a, a novel, I don't need a, you know, a, an essay, but what I would like are the relevant documents that you think are the best documents if you were on the receiving end of this letter to make you take the action that we're asking for. And also, you know, just something informal, whether it be, um, you know, notes, handwritten notes, or I prefer bullet points in an email to kind of give me the framework within which to um, to write the demand letter because I, I find that if you get that from the client, it sort of helps your client go through the process of, of setting realistic expectations, and also it makes the, your drafting the letter uh, more efficient and factually accurate. And there, there are different types of cases uh, which would require a different type of demand letters. Is that accurate? That, that's right. And, you know, the cases that, that I've dealt with um, that come to mind, I mean, you have, you know, right now I suppose a, one um, issue that a lot of lawyers are dealing with in Texas, especially in, in out in West Texas, you have, you know, your, your oil and gas demand letters, right, where you may represent a – a service company. We've done a lot of work for companies that that actually do the physical uh, work, drilling work on the well. And um, unfortunately, uh, not every well that's drilled is uh, producing well. And sometimes when it's not, the operator will just pull up and uh, fold up shop. And so your client comes to you and, you know, may have a $150,000, $200,000 invoice for unpaid drilling services. And when you have a situation like that, you really start to look at um, a, a mineral lien type of demand letter, and you know and there are some uh, statutory requirements that are that are very particular and, and necessary for you to incorporate in a in a demand letter like that. Yeah, and I, I, we'll, we'll get into it later. But the, kind of those type of demand letters require certain pretty strict deadlines, from what my understanding. That's right. Um, and if if you want to. Um, 
and I would encourage you to obviously, you know, do your own research, but uh, the place you need to start would be in uh, Chapter 56 of the, the Property Code and sort of the, the time frame that you need to be thinking about as a lawyer is about six months after the date on which your client last did work with respect to a well or a lease. That's when the, the clock is ticking because if you don't take action by, by sending a notice letter and then a lien within that six-month period, you will not be able to, to uh, have a lien. And if you file one, you could uh, have adverse uh, consequences for your client. So um, that kind of leads, I guess, into my, my next sort of question is, you know, wh- what are some red flags or concerns that come up whenever you, uh, I guess, first meet with a client and you start drafting a letter? And, and what kind of, you know, pitfalls should, should new attorneys or even older attorneys look out for when they start this process? You know, when you first meet with a client, obviously, you know, you have to use your own judgment to kind of be able to advise the client and and set up the initial demand. Um, I think, you know, as far as pitfalls are concerned, what I see a lot of uh, would be, you know, folks either missing deadlines like a a statutory deadline or disregarding a deadline. For instance, um, something that that you and I deal with, Lewis, is the Deceptive Trade Practice Act. There is a statutory requirement there that um, is 60 days uh, notice before you can file your lawsuit. And so I've had cases on the receiving end of a a DTPA letter um, where a, a a lawyer may not wait 60 days before filing suit. And then, you know, that's a pitfall because your case will be abated until that's, um, that's corrected. Uh, and then another area that, um, that you and I talked about, and it's sort of a, a new area, at least with respect to, to my perspective on it, is the, um, the Federal Debt Collection Act, where lawyers certainly were, as professionals, we, you know, you, you say the term debt collector and you think of some you know, shady character sitting in a in a yeah. dark room somewhere, you know, handing out demands. But um, there is a trend now, and in some commentary at the very least, where um, lawyers sending out demand letters for disputed debts, right, commercial debts, consumer debts, um, where, again, we look at ourselves, and we are professionals, and we're trying to do a job for our client, but there are some potential pitfalls that, are, that you can uh, run into if you don't include certain, um, I think the term is a mini Miranda language where you're basically advising the recipient of the demand letter that you are in fact trying to collect a debt. I mean, you pro- you've likely heard that language told to you right. if you've ever called to dispute a debt on a credit card or if you've ever called your mortgage company. Um, so you may have heard it before. Yeah, and, and that it goes context. something like, you know, this is a, a debt collector and any information will be used for that purpose. That's that's accurate. And again, that's something uh, relatively new. And I have to admit to the listeners, that's not language that I put in my demand letters. But after um, speaking with Lewis about it and looking at the issue, it's something that I'm going to incorporate going forward. The other part of that is a, uh, I think it's a validation uh, notice. Right. Where, and that, I think that is really something that if you have your demand letters set up in a, in a good manner uh, from the get-go, where you've identified the debt, the nature of the debt, the accrual date, things, things of that nature. And, and a lot of times it's a good idea to go ahead and include exhibits uh, right to the letter so the recipient knows that geez you know this guy's serious 
and here's all the information that I need to be in a position to respond. Right, and, and for the listeners, the, you know, the validation notice is something that you'll see a lot in consumer debt where the creditor is giving you the opportunity to dispute the validity of the debt within a certain amount of time. And so that, that's a notice that, that I put in all my demand letters. Whether it goes to a business or an individual, I put that in there just to make sure. Um, and kind of the other pitfall, I think, too, is that maybe uh, others don't understand is um, there are certain issues dealing with active military. And there are certain notices that need to be put in uh, demand letters to individuals that um, need, you, you need to be aware um, and put those in there. That's a good point. So what are the things, you know, let's get back to more of the general demand letters. What makes a good demand letter? A good demand letter is, you know, brevity, I think, is key, right? And, and that's difficult for lawyers sometimes, and, and me in particular. Um, but, you know, write it. Write it like you would, um, you know, are expecting the, for it to end up on the desk of the, the CFO of the company that you have a dispute with. Or write it like you expect it to end up in the general counsel's office or, or the, the lawyer's hand. Because, you know, I can tell you from receiving about as many demands as I've sent out, it's always interesting to kind of, you know, to see the different quality of, of writing styles. It, it does matter. Um, obviously, substance matters, but form is also important. Uh, and so I, I think that that's key. Again, factual accuracy. I know as a lawyer, sometimes you feel like, the, and I've, I've heard this term and I've, and I've lived it, you're lawyering in the dark, right, where you don't know all the facts yet. And that's fair because you're not going to know all the facts at the demand letter stage, but do your best to, to know the, the relevant pertinent facts because I will tell you that low-hanging fruit for a recipient of a demand letter or a lawyer of the recipient of the demand letter is to write a response and say, well, that's nice, but it's totally inaccurate, and here's the real story. And so to the extent you can get the real story, even if it's not the best point for your client, Addressing negative points head-on, I think, is, is key also. But, you know, do your best to make it factually accurate. Um, because, again, like Lewis and I mentioned, it, you're, not, you're very rarely going to send out a demand letter and that be the end of the story, right? You're going to send out the demand letter with a view of, of getting the, the resolution as quickly as you can but being realistic about it. And, and something I just thought of, you know, do, do, do demand letters sometimes end up, end up as exhibits in – trial i would think that's exactly right and i can tell you more often than not that that's the case and so i think also and this is something that i think you know as a young lawyer i struggled with i i think you know hopefully i've gotten past it i I probably still struggle with a little bit but tone is important right because i think you know the term lost in translation uh is is right on because you don't always you know, you can write the nastiest, meanest letter and then completely go too aggressive and push away the recipient. And so that's right. also something. And I know as a young lawyer, you want to get in there and, you know, and, and fight for your client as you should. But part of fighting for your client is not fighting so hard that you uh, submarine the potential for, uh, for an early resolution, which is obviously your goal when, when sending these letters out. Um, what about what are your thoughts on 
citing case law and law and statutes in a demand letter when it may not go to a lawyer at first? I, I think it has two effects. I mean, I think it shows, number one, it is beneficial to your client because you've, at that point, if you're, if you're into the substance, you've obviously thought through the issues, right? You've thought through uh, and analyzed, and, and you've got some supporting case law or supporting statutes. So it's, you know, it's good for your client because it shows you're prepared. If it doesn't end up with a, um, a lawyer receiving the letter or somebody that's sophisticated enough to give it to a lawyer, it may have a negative consequence too. I mean, you don't, again, it goes back to, Think about where you were before you went to law school and where you were before you became a lawyer. If somebody sent me a letter with a lot of, uh, you know, case law or statutes, I may get it and, and just be freaked out and throw it in the trash and go, go on about my business. But um, so, again, it's, just, it's really something you have to feel your way through. And I think um, it kind of comes back to tone. I mean, tone's important. And, um, you know, and, and, but that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's two sides to that coin. Um, what about in your demand letters um, giving the other side a time to respond? Is it, do you put some timelines in there, and, or does it depend on the case? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, it does depend on the case, but there are uh, some statutory time requirements. For instance, the, the Deceptive Trade Practice Act that Lewis and I mentioned earlier, uh, you really need to give 60 days notice to the recipient before you can proceed with a lawsuit, uh, and so that's a time requirement. Um, with respect to personal injury demand letters, um, if anybody does personal injury work, you've either drafted or received a Stowers demand, right? Right. And the Stowers demand, it's, it's based on case law, but really it's a reasonable time within which to, to give the recipient the option to, um, to make a decision about the merits of your demand reasonable time i think what i've seen is you know anywhere from two weeks to 30 days um i think obviously if you know you have a client in a stowers situation where you've got 250 pages of medical records is 14 days a reasonable time probably not if you have a client that you know went to the emergency room and did you know a few weeks of of, uh, physical therapy is two weeks you know so you have less records is two weeks a reasonable time probably um, but, again, that's something you'll have to feel out based on the, the situation. The insurance code also, I know in, in Texas with all the – Lewis and I are sitting here in this hotel, and it looks like we're having a, a flood outside. And so, you know, there's, all, there's a host of insurance issues that come up uh, in the first-party sense. And so then there again uh, in Chapter 541 of the insurance code, and there's uh, statutory requirements, right, that you have to give the, the insurance company a certain amount of time to respond. And so, you know, it, it depends on the circumstance, certainly, um, but I would encourage you to, to err on the side of giving more time than less time, right? Because again, like Lewis said, you, you know, your letter may be used against you one day. It may be used against you to show that you weren't reasonable with respect to what you're asking for in, in the time of performance. And so let's get to some more kind of logistical concerns with demand letters. Who are you sending them to, and you know who do you copy, and, and who do you you know try to send those letters to? Well, I you know I, that really depends on on the case, um, but I do a lot of work in the the insurance world uh, for and and against carriers, 
Um, and so you obviously are, you know, you want to make sure it ends up in the, the hands of a decision maker, whether that be an adjuster, whether it's the, you know, maybe the CEO of a company or whether um, it's their lawyer. But I think what, what goes hand in hand with that, Lewis, is, is sort of it's not only the who you send them to, but it's how you send them. Right. Because I I was thinking about this this morning. I had a um, I was in court a couple months ago. And it was it was small claims court, in fact, and I was watching these two uh, non-lawyer gentlemen in front of the judge. It was a dispute about a, a house that one of the parties had rented, and he was trying to send notice to his landlord, and, you know, things went sideways, and they ended up, you know, arguing in front of a, a judge in JP court. And one of the, the gentlemen that was uh, sending notice letters and demand letters I suppose thought he was being cute by sending them uh, certified mail, and they kept coming back unclaimed, right? Which oftentimes happens, as as you're going to find out in your practice. And the judge wasn't too impressed by the fact that he didn't try to take the additional step of sending it to the the homeowner via regular mail, right? And and so what we do in our practice, and what Lewis and I do, is when we get ready to draft one of these letters and it's ready to go out. Um, we always have our assistants send the letter uh, regular mail and certified mail to ensure that the regular mail, if it doesn't come back as an improper address, you can go into court and show the court. And it's been my experience that, that judges are comfortable with the fact uh, that if the regular mail doesn't come back, then you know you can presume the recipient got it. We also do with respect to um, to companies, when we send demand letters to companies, it's imperative that uh, the registered agent of the company right, gets right. the demand letter right. And I, I think the the place you go to get that information is with the Texas Secretary of State. If you're sending it to an insurance company, go to the uh, Texas Department of Insurance. Uh, I think it's company lookup. You just type it into your Google search bar, and it will have – the insurer's registered agent, um, again, because, you know, in, in some insurance disputes, you may be sending a demand letter to, to Lloyd's of London, um, which I've done about a month and a half ago, and that demand letter is going to London, huh. uh, you know, or an office uh, in yeah. North London. And so you can have the best demand letter in the world, but if it doesn't get to the recipient, it's, it's not worth much. Uh, personal service is uh, is also another way. There, You know, I that's maybe a bit um it's not cheap because you have to pay the process server but sometimes it's very effective because uh it it does have the intended effect of getting the recipient's uh, attention rather than just going to the mailbox and and picking up a letter um what about sending um demand letters through email or facebook or twitter what's your yeah i would i would say Email, we always, I mean, now email is kind of the norm. I think people have realized that um, we communicate with our clients and adversaries on a daily basis via email. So you always also want to, uh, if you have the email address, you always want to go ahead and, and do that as, a, um, as a, another means of delivery in addition to the certified mail and regular mail um, or personal service. And then, um, you know, when it, when it comes to um, social media forums and Twitter and things of that nature, 
I love all of that, but not when it comes to um, your professional work as a lawyer, because I think you know you it's it, it, it you start to step outside the the ethical boundaries of communicating with folks on social media sites, and so I would. Um, highly recommend to avoid um, those mechanisms of communications with an adversary at all costs. Right. I, I think that's that's a good point. Um, and also, you know, depending on the type of case, there are certain statutes that require it be sent certified mail. So that's something definitely to consider as well. Going back to kind of who to send the demand letters to, do you, uh, does your practice, do you typically send a copy to your client also? or? Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, we do a lot of work. Um, you know, we have a, a wide range of clients, and I have found, as I'm sure most of the listeners have found, when you're involved in, in business litigation, oftentimes emotions are, are very detached from the, the dispute, and it's, it's really about uh, business strategy or, uh, you know, a, a money dispute. And so, the, obviously, you're, you know, you're going to be probably dealing with in-house counsel for your client who's going to want to be very involved in the process of, of drafting the letter, and, and obviously you want to send a copy to them. But I think it's almost more important when you have your individual clients um, to really make them feel as if they're a part of the drafting, and then they want to obviously see the finished product um, because it's, it, it, you know, it's, if, if they've come to you and have engaged your uh, professional services and you've taken the time to draft the letter, you've, uh, you've included them in that process, then they certainly want to and are entitled to see the, the finished product. Uh, so before we wrap up, I want to kind of just maybe go through some specific types of demand letters and just and, you know, give us your thoughts on uh, some things to include or things to consider when, when uh, our listeners and, and young attorneys out there are trying to draft these. So we mentioned a little bit earlier about the DTPA or Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Um, what kind of things need to be in those type of letters? I think uh, those letters you know, are important because obviously they, they trigger the statutory timelines within which you're bound um, to then file a lawsuit after uh, you know, the notice period has gone. And again, you, you guys can find that in uh, Chapter 17 of the Texas Business and Commerce Code. Um, but I think what's important is obviously the, the recovery of attorney's fees is chiefly important to your client and, and to you as a lawyer. And so that, you know, you, wanna, you want to provide um, presentment of your attorney fee claim in those type of letters. You want, again, it goes back to what we, and I, what I hope, um, if nothing else, don't oversell and it, because it goes back to the tone of the letter. Be accurate with respect to your fees because, again, it's very likely that if that case or if that letter ends up in a lawsuit, that um, that letter is going to be an exhibit one day, right, to, to show um, your presentment of attorney's fees and, and the nature of your demand. So I think that with respect to the DTPA, you want to be mindful of uh, what you're asking for, the relief you're asking for. There's, you know, there's monetary relief available. There's injunctive relief, uh, rescission relief, if the, the transaction is appropriate. And... Um, but yeah, a good a good presentment of an attorney fee claim, I think, is is very important in a letter like that. And I'd add too, in the DTPA letters, um, something that can make it an improper letter is if the sender hasn't outlined what specific DTPA violations or what uh, they're called laundry list violations. So that those also should be included. 
And then I think we talked a little bit about mineral liens, um, and there's a very specific statute for mechanics liens. And so I don't know what's your familiarity with with those type of, of claims. Yeah, I've been um, I've been fortunate to have um, to have clients on on both sides of the um, the mineral lien issue, and I think you know what's important is that oftentimes in the in the oil and gas field. You know, you've got a, a service company, right? And ser- meaning the, a company that either provides goods or labor on a particular well. And, you know, sometimes they have a good working relationship with the operator. And so they're, you know, they may let an invoice ride for three or four months or they've got another job and they're busy and they don't have a, you know, a big or sophisticated in-house um, billing department. And so sometimes, you know, you, you have those folks come to you and you're six months past the date of the last date on which they did work, right? And, again, all this is covered in Chapter 56 of the Property Code, and I would advise you strongly, if you have a client that does oil field work, to take a look at that. And, you know, it may be an avenue for, uh, for the listeners to reach out to a client that they haven't done work for in a while, and say, hey, I, you know, I, I know you do this type of work. I do this type of work. And did you know that you need to have your, your billing department put a calendar reminder right. after you get off the job, right? After you, um, whether you're doing rig moving work, whether you're doing fracking, whatever it may be, the date that you last do the work, have your billing um, uh, personnel do a one-month, two-month, three-month calendar reminder um, so you don't let these important deadlines go by. Because I've had a case where um, it actually happened where uh, um, a mineral lien was filed after the statutory deadline had passed. And and when that happens, uh, you are not going to receive a response to the mineral lien. You are going to receive a slander of title lawsuit because (laughs) it's an improper lien. And and so you want to help your clients. You don't want to hurt them. But I think it's a good avenue to, to maybe reach out to your client and say, hey, did you guys, were you all aware of this? Because I can assure you, based on my experience, they, were, they will not have been aware of that unless they've been on the unfortunate end of having, um, you know, having a, a, stat or a deadline blown, basically. And the same thing rings true for um, Chapter 53 and the, the uh, mechanics and material men's liens, and those timelines are much stricter. Uh, they actually require uh, for a subcontractor a two-month notice um, before uh, it has, has to be sent to the owners of the property as well as the original contractor, or you could blow the, the same lien deadlines and, and really um, hurt your client's chance of recovery and, and chance of winning their case. That's true. Um, so, you know, out, you know, make sure, you know, listeners out there, you check out the statutes for your specific type of case because they will have certain timelines that need to be in there. What about forms? Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, you know, forms are sort of are good and, and developed just through your practice. Um, you know, and I think of forms, Lewis, honestly, I... I have a lot of forms for kind of litigation forms, and I have, you know, obviously once you've drafted a demand letter, that's kind of your form going forward. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, kind of make, you know, using your own form, if that makes sense, because it's not a – every demand letter you're going to draft is obviously factually going to be different. Right. Um, now, I will tell you what, what you can, you know, you can obviously borrow from the former letters that you've sent out. And one easy thing that you can always do is 
really work on drafting a, a good, concise, and legally accurate um, paragraph for the recovery of attorney's fees. And, you know, that, that's going to be part of your form and, and something that you can rely on on, um, on other matters. Right. All right. Well, um, Raj, what's kind of just your last bit of advice for our, our young gunners out there? I was thinking about just the, my experience, and sometimes you don't want to send a demand letter, right? And I don't want to um, to oversell that, but how about this scenario? You're, you've got a, a time-sensitive matter, okay? You don't want to be running up against the statute of limitations, obviously. That's one scenario. Or you don't want to give the other side sort of the, the opportunity to strike first when it comes to litigation. And I have seen this, and, and one good example is where you have a, um, an insurance dispute, and your client is the, the insured, the injured party, and you send a demand letter uh, requesting the carrier to tender coverage, and rather than respond by tendering coverage to your client, the carrier goes ahead and files a lawsuit for declaratory judgment. And they do that because then they can recover attorney's fees under the, the deck action, whereas if your client was the first to file a breach of contract claim, they wouldn't have an avenue for the recovery of attorney's fees. And so I think practical advice is demand letters are, are very effective. They need to be done in a, you know, a very accurate, concise manner, uh, professionally done. Really think about the tone of your letter because you are really setting the parameters on a go-forward basis of what, how that dispute's going to get resolved. And also sometimes think about when you don't want to send one because there are times where the demand letter is going to, no matter how well it's done and how right you are, is going to give the other side the opportunity to strike first. Um, and, you know, it's my experience that you want to be the – the party kind of setting the the playing field so that that would be my advice and but yeah that's that's pretty much it all right well thanks Raja. i want to just circle back there were three things that you said that, that i think really uh stuck with me and 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 i think st- will stick with our listeners but um when you write these demand letters you know you said you know you want to write them like they're going to go to the decision maker because ultimately that's who's going to help resolve the case if you're writing a demand letter um you also mentioned that um, this is your first chance to, to lose credibility, so make sure that your uh, facts are accurate and you're not trying to oversell the claim. I think that's extremely important advice. And then also, you know, you want to manage expectations with your client um, because not all um, adverse parties are going to just write you a check after you send a demand letter. So I think managing those expectations with your client is also extremely important. Well, thank you, Raj, for your time and advice. Uh, I think this has been a great learning tool for those attorneys interested in learning more about writing, sending, and receiving demand letters. Uh, Thank you all for listening to Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. If you liked our show and you want to know more, you can check out the TYLA website, tyla.org, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, you can find our, our Young Gunners podcast. If you have a topic that you want to hear about, email us at tyla at texasbar.com or send us a tweet at at texyounglawyers using the hashtag younggunners. Um, You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks and keep up the good work out there.